I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, Matt Bernico. Uh, Dean, I gotta tell you, my throat is really scratchy. It's really hurting. Um, I was at a Palestinian solidarity rally today in Glasgow, and it was a great time. Um, I did a lot of chanting, though, and I'm in a <laughs> I'm in a troubling vocal space <laughs> with regards to podcasting. So uh, I'm not sure my voice is going to really hold out. Well, we'll see. We'll see if you can go the whole hour. Uh, I think, though, it could work in your favor because I don't know about you. Sometimes I just start talking like I am right now and I don't exactly know when I'm going to stop. Uh, and I feel like when that happens, having a chant in your back pocket to just sort of pull <laughs> out and say could really save you. That's true. Um, in case anyone's wondering, the chants, they're all the same here as in the U.S. That's cool. Um, I showed up and I knew all the words and that was really uplifting. I was kind of wondering if there would be some different <laughs> some different Scottish <laughs> Palestinian solidarity chants. Uh, but they're all they're all the same. And I like that. It made me feel really at home in the whole situation. So it's great. <laughs> all those chart topping hits uh, across the world globalization. It's really uh, affecting the, the protest space as well. Man, that's a great point. I am now I'm deeply one like deeply concerned and kind of interested to know how how the chance got around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're all going to the same like uh, chant genius dot com to look up the, the, the words to our favorite chance. <laughs> That's right. Got to get ChatGPT to give us some good universal chance. Yeah, that's right. Um, the only good use for that whole thing. <laughs> that's right. This week, though, um, we're not talking about ChatGPT, but we are talking about Palestine again. Uh, last week, we had a really important interview with Jonathan Kutab, the director of the Friends of Sibyl North America. And you should listen to it if you haven't yet. You should definitely listen to it before you listen to this one. Um, important to listen to an actual Palestinian person talk about Palestine before us. Uh, but we are going to split the difference a little bit here by not also just um, giving a bunch of hot takes about Palestine, but continuing to read some Palestinian authors and kind of contextualize the current uh, situation in light of that. So we decided to read a book called A Palestinian Theology of Liberation by Naim Atik. Atik is like one of the, uh, the, the big names, one of the original folks doing liberation theology in Palestine. And this book is from 2017, so it's kind of recent, but obviously before the current wave of violence in Palestine. Uh, but I think, as Jonathan Katab reminded us last week, 
Um, the current wave of violence is maybe, you know, of a horrific scale, but not discontinuous with what has happened before. So it'll be good to get some context on how Palestinian Christians have thought about justice and theology um, in, in the past and are currently actively thinking about it now. There are a ton of things that you can read maybe adjacent to this. Uh, Sabil, which is the um, kind of ecumenical center for liberation theology in Palestine, has been putting out lots of statements and so have the Friends of Sabil Network organizations. So it's, I think, just a good time to sort of go back and read some of those sources and try to get a, a wider and longer, broader perspective um, so that we can make sense of things that uh, maybe don't make sense when you're just getting pummeled by headlines about how bad everything is every day. Yeah, totally. I think it's actually a really helpful book to kind of understand um not only, I mean, I don't know. It's I don't know if it's helpful for understanding the current situation because it doesn't have um, a lot to do with like the current events necessarily. But it does help. It gives lots of like really good background um, on uh, the Nakba and, and things like that. But also, like, it is very helpful to read about how like Palestinian Christians think about liberation and how they think about justice. So it's definitely an insight that you're not going to get elsewhere. Um, so it's a good book, and that's why we're talking about it. Oh wait, no, hang, hang on. This is actually really important. <laughs> as well um uh Naim Atik is episcopalian that's the thing i wanted to say is that he's out here as a liberation theologian he's not catholic <laughs> folks he's episcopalian so uh mark that one down in the books one of the few and i think that's really exciting is he okay you have to explain this to me i did get married in the episcopal church but it's been a long time now um is he episcopal or anglican or is that a difference that makes a difference in a place like palestine uh i don't know if it is a difference that makes a difference uh I, usually you call it episcopal if it's outside of england like if it's england it's an anglican church like in like for example Oh man, a huge life update for me, by the way. I've been we've been making so many jokes about um about being Presbyterian in the last few episodes because I went to the Church of Scotland. But uh my family, we started going back to the to a Scottish Episcopalian church, um, which there are not very many of them, but there is there are some. So, anyways, I'm back on the Episcopal train, um, <laughs> which is great <laughs> to get all those smells and bells. <laughs> but even in Scotland, for example, uh it's called the Scottish Episcopal Church, not the Anglican Church, because that would be like huh yucky <laughs> i'm so confused because we have the anglican church here in canada but the episcopal church across the border which i think is an american revolutionary problem anyway it's this neither here nor there listen if you're an anglican nerd and i know that there are a lot of you who are just uh sitting there with your tweet at the ready um you can definitely let us know what's going on and uh you can help me figure it out but we're not talking about that uh matt's point <laughs> remains i think uh you're making the important point that uh Deke is not a catholic um but definitely invested in kind of the broad conversation around liberation theology and we'll talk about this more in a minute but uh it's also really interesting to kind of see how he relates to catholic and other strands of liberation theologies and you're right matt you can claim him as a co-religionist and what what great news <laughs> for you specifically yeah you know i think it is it's important um it's important for episcopalians because uh in the us you know episcopalianism is uh it's stuffy but <laughs> elsewhere in the world it's alive in different ways and that's cool um, okay, so let's start off in this book uh, at the very beginning, page one, even. So Naim Atik, he opens his book um, with a, a little bit of a story about him like growing up in Palestine. Um, and I think that's kind of a cool place to start because it does, it demonstrates that like, I don't know, 
he has like some real skin in the game, and I think it gives some illumination to like uh, of of what the what the moment in 1948 was even like, and I think how it did not only affect uh, people who were Muslims, uh, but also affected Christians and I mean Jewish people too in this different way. Um, so, anyways, let's start there. I'm going to read this bit that he wrote, kind of biographically about himself, and then we'll kind of get into the more theological parts. So, Naim Atik writes: In 1948, I was a boy living in Baisan, a Palestinian town of 6,000 people, close to the Jordan River. Baisan was a mixed town of Muslims and Christians, and had a vibrant Christian community that belonged to three churches: Eastern Orthodox, Latin, uh, Roman Catholic, and Anglican. I cherish fond memories of living in my hometown. My father had a good business as a goldsmith and silversmith. He had moved from Nablus to Baisan in 1920s. He bought land and built three houses on it. God blessed him with 10 children. I was number eight. We lived a very comfortable life in Baisan. It was a beautiful town, blessed for its delicious fruits and vegetables and had fresh water springs flowing from the adjacent mountains, irrigating people's land and garden. I still remember our garden and the variety of fruit trees my father planted and our family enjoyed. Our life turned upside down when the Zionist militias came to Baisan in May 1948 and occupied us. Many people were afraid and fled, while others remained in their homes. My father never wanted to leave. He begged the military commander to let us stay. But his military orders were clear. Everyone had to go. It was ethnic cleansing. We were forced out of our homes at gunpoint and were ordered to meet at the center of town. The soldiers divided us up into two groups, Muslims and Christians. The Muslims were sent to the country of Jordan, a few miles east of Baisan, the Christians were put on buses and driven to the outskirts of Nazareth, where they were dumped outside the city limits, never to be allowed to return home. When we arrived in Nazareth, we discovered that hundreds and thousands of Palestinians from the neighboring villages had, had suffered a similar fate. They too fled in fear or were evicted by force and came to Nazareth seeking refuge. All of a sudden, the population of Nazareth swelled immensely. For our family, as for all others, it was hard to live as refugees after living comfortably in one's own home and on one's land. I think this is a helpful story and a helpful way to kind of begin the conversation of Palestinian liberation theology. Um, liberation theology always happens in a particular context, right? It's always, a, it's like, it's a reaction to a, a particular moment in history and it's reading the Bible in light of that, right? And that is the um, moment in history and at least at the very beginning, it's like the beginning of the history, <laughs> I guess, that Naim Atik is starting <laughs> to write his theology of liberation. Um and uh, I mean, you can see you can see where where it starts to come from, right? There's a dispossession of land. There's uh, a relocation, just like he says, ethnic cleansing. Um, and anyways, that's where that, that, I guess it, it's important to read that story because like that's where Palestinian liberation theology gets its start is uh, in in this particular context in this struggle. I think it's interesting too because that is the perspective that we don't hear when we talk about Israel and Palestine in general. We don't hear the stories of the the Nakba. We don't hear the stories of people being cleared off of their land. And when we do hear it, it's usually kind of I don't know swept aside or considered unimportant. Or it's like the people who were there were kind of I guess in in imagination for Western Christians, it's usually like they were just squatting or just kind of hanging around, waiting until you know. The, the the state of Israel came to like get its rightful land back from them or something. So it's all sort of like deserved violence or um, or inconsequential, at least. And I think it's important to kind of hear those stories directly. You know, I'm not an expert on Palestine at all. I feel like I've been playing catch up probably like many other people just in the last few years. 
And I actually just started reading this book about a year ago and found myself so struck by that, um, just that narrative, that really simple story of like, here's a priest, an Anglican priest, Episcopal priest, who, uh, you know, is is alive right now and has living memory of a time before the state of Israel was pushing Palestinians off of uh, off of land in that way. And I think that alone is pretty remarkable and just like essential to keep in mind when we see, again, all those kind of headlines of bombings and destruction in Gaza and, uh, you know, violence in the West Bank and everything else that like the land actually wasn't always like that. And in fact, there are people alive right now who remember a pretty different situation. Yeah, that's right. Um, a helpful, <laughs> helpful thing to get your mind around it. I saw a, a thread on Twitter. This is a stupid thing to say in a podcast because I could, I wish I could just show them to you. But I did see a thread on Twitter of, um, of pictures of what Palestine was like uh, pre nineteen forty eight, and I think it, it serves like a, a similar purpose though, right? That people did live there. It, there were lives. There was you know a whole mm-hmm. thing there before before this dispossession happened. Before you know all of it. So um, it is helpful to know that (laughs) as a person who is separated both uh, uh, geographically and and in time and space, I guess, from from the whole situation. Um, Okay, so there's that backdrop to it all. Um, That's like the story undergirding Palestinian liberation theology. Um, But there's also sort of like a theological understanding that Naeem Atik brings to the table, I think is worth... um, through that that is like um it's it's not unique to palestinian liberation theology i think in the way that uh we're going to read it but i think uh it's a it's an important reaction to that struggle though um it is uh uh, i'm trying to like we'll we'll, we'll have a bigger conversation later on about the ways that palestinian liberation theology fits into like uh particular tropes or trends of of other types of liberation theology uh it's distinct it draws on some of the same themes it there's there's a whole lot going on there we'll talk about it later that's what i'm trying to say uh, but for now, uh, I'm going to read this piece from, from the book, and we can, uh, we can work through it. So uh, Atik writes, The life Christ offers us is life in all fullness. The fullness is not offered in some distant, far-off future, but in our present circumstances. We are able to enter into the fullness of life because Christ has already achieved our liberation through his death and resurrection. Indeed, Christ is our liberator, and God in Christ wills that we should be free. Therefore, we need to stand firm and must not submit to anything that dehumanizes or enslaves us. Uh, I, I guess this is helpful because this is uh, the place in the book where Atik starts making sense of uh, what it means to think about theology in terms of um, living in a context of struggle, a context that is um, not liberated, right? Um, he has some words later on in the book, too, that are very interesting. Um about liberation because um this is liberation theology uh in in every sense of the word right it's about it's about you know not just like the freedom that like christ gives you from sin or something but about real liberation from an oppressive political system uh but the the other piece that we need to get on the table i think early is that the particular outlook of palestinian liberation theology is one that is like that hinges on nonviolence. Um, so the, the type of liberation that they're talking about here is like something particular. Um, it's like, it is both theological and political and it has a, a, and, and, and the texture of it, the character of it is nonviolent. Um, so anyways, all that is important to get on the table from the very beginning. Um, that's where like the rubber is hitting the road for, uh, people who are invested in Palestinian liberation theology or, you know, the communities of Christians who are having these conversations, um, just a, a good orienting point, maybe. 
Yeah, a very good orienting point. Um, you know, it reminds me of what uh, Jonathan Katab was saying in the last episode, too, that the particularities in Palestinian liberation theology, obviously there's a historical difference there and a kind of geographical specificity that makes a difference. But he made a point to say nonviolence is one thing that kind of is distinct in Palestinian liberation theology. And, I mean, you see that here in Atik, you see it in a lot of others as well, but it is remarkable to read, and I think important, because it's not the case that other liberation theologies reject violence, right? In fact, uh, a lot of Latin American liberation theologies have pretty nuanced perspectives on violence and the role of uh, struggle, and I think it's interesting because at least when you're kind of faced with the pretty grim realities that Palestinians face, you could at least I could be pretty forgiving when it comes to uh, an openness to being violent. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty bad situation and you know, like it's uh, it's like, you know, in, in many ways worse than other places where violent revolutions have taken place and have been deemed justified in the eyes of history and so on. Um, but nevertheless, Palestinian liberation theology, uh, at least expressed by Atik and so many others makes a point to express itself through nonviolence. And and it does it in a lot of nuanced ways with some pretty, I don't know, like important distinctions and, uh, you know, understanding itself as contributing to rather than dividing the, the, the liberation struggle in Palestine. But uh, nevertheless, really cool to kind of, I guess, to see a liberation theology um, pull nonviolence into the conversation in such a committed way. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Um Okay, so there's that piece of of the of Palestinian liberation theology that kind of helps us orient in a particular direction. But also, I think um, Naimatik isn't just focusing on like okay, it's Palestinian liberation theology, right? It's coming out of this particular meeting in history where um, this struggle is happening in Palestine. <laughs> but I guess there's also more to it. I think that uh, he's taking up, and that is maybe like the larger uh, project of liberation theology, and maybe this is where it kind of connects. Uh, a little bit later in that same section I was reading before, Atik says this, that, um, you know, there, this particular type of theology goes beyond feeding the hungry and housing the homeless and providing care for the sick. He says that seeking justice requires us to confront the underlying inequalities in the power structures of oppression. This means asking tough questions about why people are hungry in some parts of the world and not in others. It means critiquing the underlying factors that create refugees. It means questioning unequal access to life-saving medical treatment. Um, so I think that this is another important piece here too, because it's not, I, I guess, I mean, it's it's um, it's about a particular meeting of history. It's like a, a particular meeting between like um, a theology and like uh, a particular historical struggle, right? But it's about like the bigger picture too, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's not only about Palestine. It's about inequality everywhere. It's about liberation everywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's bigger than just this historical moment, but it's also kind of contained within this historical moment. Um, it, it's, mm -hmm. that's something that happens, like, I think in liberation theology largely. And I guess I, I feel like, <laughs> like I want to, I don't know, like I'm trying to protect it or trying to like pull it out because like, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's called a Palestinian theology of liberation. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that it has something to say to the wider world in, in the way that Gustavo Gutierrez has something to say to the wider world. I think that the Palestinian theology of liberation does as well. I think the whole reason I'm like, I think ranting here is that I want people in the U.S. to read this and think that this is not just about Palestine. This is about this is about everything. You know, this is about the mm -hmm. whole the whole thing. <laughs> 
Right. It's that classic move of kind of moving from the particular to the general in that way, which is definitely the the aspiration of liberation theology, too, that it's always contextual. It's always starting from a place, but such that it, it kind of recognizes that each place is tied to every other place in these pretty profound ways, especially in a world of, you know, global capitalism and colonialism and everything else, but just generally insofar as uh, human struggles kind of resonate with other human struggles and kind of open up uh, themes in the Bible and uh, our faith tradition and whatever else that are, you know, maybe just seen differently through the lens of somebody living in Palestine than you would in, in the U.S. And I think Atik uh, demonstrates that over and over in the book. Um, something else I think is really interesting, uh, this is... Uh, thing that we heard last week too, but Atik says Palestinian liberation theology began at St. George's Cathedral, Jerusalem, home of the Palestinian Anglican Episcopal community, where I was the priest and pastor of the congregation. Every Sunday, the sermon revolved around the gospel for the day and spoke to the situation and reality on the ground. After worship, the community gathered around coffee to reflect in light of the gospel and on their life under the illegal Israeli occupation. People shared their stories and experiences. They struggled with the meaning of their faith under occupation. And I think that was really interesting, too, because as we're talking about kind of going from the particular to the general, um, this is basically the formula that you get also in, for example, like Introducing Liberation Theology, the book by Leonardo and Clodovis Boff, where the key to liberation theology is actually in the kind of informal pieces or the the adjacent pieces of the formal liturgies and so on, right? Like trying to speak with one another about daily realities, about what's going on, and tie that in a grassroots way to faith. And in, in that book by the Boffs, they talk about liberation theologians are kind of the, the maybe you could say like the amphibians of, of this discourse. You know, they have like one foot in the academy and one foot in the, the daily reality of folks which is probably, you know, it's no accident that so many of the big names are clergy people, although not all of them, especially uh, women in the Catholic Church and that tradition and so on. Um, but Atik is filling that role too, right? He's sort of like, he's part of this community, living in this community, and he also has a, a training that allows him to articulate or kind of draw out in a more detailed or systematic way what's being intuited or said in that local community. And I think that's just another reason to kind of be reading liberation theologies from so many parts of the world, because you get this sort of pattern that repeats that out of reflection on daily experiences, there ends up being uh, all this kind of new generative material for rethinking our faith in light of, you know, lived material reality and um, also just a, a great reason why you should like stay after church, I guess, and have coffee with everybody else and try to get them to talk about city council or whatever. Yeah, I think that is actually very funny. Um, I don't know. That's always a staple of any uh, Episcopal church I've ever been to is coffee hour afterwards. And uh, usually I hate it because it's so it's like just a an, it's like a, a situation where you have to make a lot of small talk. But maybe I'm just not thinking about it the right way. I need to start asking people lots of uh, organizing questions there or something. <laughs> What's really making you mad at work? What can we, Actually, what can uh, we get done here? <laughs> That's right. You know, it's really funny too, uh, thinking of uh, coffee hours. This is kind of an aside, but uh, related. There's a, a great parish in Toronto, St. Joan of Arc, and at their um, coffee hour, they serve uh, fair trade coffee that they source from uh, their own supplier. And then they also sell um, olive oil from Palestine specifically. And it's so funny because it's like, 
you know, on the one hand, a really innocuous gesture, like, okay, we're having coffee hours, so it should just be ethical coffee. But the people who run it are also just, like, really committed to global solidarity. So, like, if you're a normal person there, you're going to get coffee, but you're also going to learn that, like, most coffee is bad. <laughs> and I think that's a, a great thing that we can do in the global north, you know, is sort of uh, make an effort to uh, to decolonize our coffee hours, maybe, and uh, <laughs> sell some Palestinian olive oil while you're at it. That's great. Zapatista coffee, Palestinian olive oil. Um, it's a great way to get started, at least. Um, yeah, that uh, anyways, that story about like the beginning of of Palestinian liberation theology at uh, at the Episcopal Coffee Hour is very funny. Um, I like it a lot. He goes on to say on, on a similar point, he says that the Sunday gatherings, the coffee hour, they became popular and attracted other Christians from other communities in Jerusalem as well as internationals. In the midst of the suffering of our people due to the brutality of Israeli occupation forces, the members of our faith communities found the discussion to be spiritually and psychologically therapeutic. It deepened their faith and gave them comfort, encouragement, and hope for the week to come. The discussion became more stimulating when it dawned on the Palestinian Christians that the person they call Savior and Lord was himself a victim of oppressive occupation. They did not have to go far to look for a liberator. Jesus Christ was a Palestinian as we are. He lived in the same land we are in. He breathed the same air we breathe. His language and thought patterns were Semitic as ours. The Palestine he lived in was a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial, and multi-religious society as it has been ever since. Moreover, the political situation of his day, with its many political and religious parties, showed great similarities to our situation today. I think this is cool because, I, I mean, this is not unlike the Gospel in Solentaname even. I mean, it's different in context and geography and time and everything else, I guess. But it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say, though, is that like it's a, it's a moment where people are sitting down and they're thinking about the Bible and they're reading it like, you know, themselves, or they're thinking about the the sermon they just heard, or or whatever the the liturgy they just prayed. Um, but you know, they're they're trying to put it in their historical context. They're trying to think about like, you know, what does it say to them in this moment? And uh, they find themselves in this really interesting situation where they are facing occupation, um, and and they find themselves, I think, to be a little bit closer to Christ because of that. And uh, that's a really interesting kind of revelation to have uh, in a community of people. I think that's right. And uh, maybe that's a good segue to to start thinking through what um, what kind of revelations come out of that particular experience. So we've been saying uh, it's a Palestinian theology of liberation. So it has these ties to other kinds of liberation theologies. So maybe this is a good point, a good moment to uh, pivot to that. So Naomi Teek says, while each liberation theology focuses on different injustices, he's referring to the differences between, for instance, Latin American theology um, black liberation theology, uh, feminist theology, etc. Uh, while they each focus on different injustices, they share the common principle that the central Christian message is one of freedom and that this message has powerful implications for each specific context. Within this global liberation movement, Palestinian liberation theology was born when faith confronted the injustice of the conquest of Palestinian land by the government of Israel and its oppression of the Palestinian people. From a Palestinian perspective, the creation of the State of Israel has been a settler colonial enterprise by Zionism that sought to dispossess the Palestinians, Muslims and Christians, of their land and replace them with Jews. One of the many features of this enterprise has been the use of the Bible as a tool to claim that the land of Palestine belongs solely to the Jewish people. Such a claim is historically false and theologically unfounded. Liberating the scriptures from Zionism means understanding that the person of Jesus Christ reveals a loving God who desires the liberation of all people. Uh, it's a pretty interesting uh, 
uh, reflection, I think some of it's probably obvious, right? <laughs> it's a, a theology that is uh, relating to an experience of oppression in Palestine, and, and that is a, a unique piece. But uh, something that we were seeing even in um, in other theologians from uh, from Palestine, like I've been reading a lot of Mitri Raheb right now, is a lot of kind of connecting the dots between uh, different historical situations with respect to what makes Palestine unique. And uh, particular, I'm thinking of uh, Rehab has this book called Decolonizing Palestine, where he sees us on this idea that what's happening in Palestine is settler colonialism. So he's reading all these kind of studies of settler colonialism in the Americas and uh, other countries too. Um, and he's also kind of finding a lot of interesting resonances with indigenous theologies around the world. Uh, so there's that kind of really interesting connection. Uh, but then there's also this sort of unique piece about examining Zionism in some, you know, detailed and, and complicated ways. And I think uh, that's probably the most challenging rhetoric as well for Christian readers in other parts of the world. Certainly is challenging for me. Um, and, you know, also something that maybe is not without uh, <laughs> reason for some caution and careful reading as well. But uh, I think is a, a really uh, important factor of kind of what makes it unique in in Palestine. You know, there it's a liberation theology that's also confronting the fact that uh, scriptures that are common to Christians and Jews, for example, are being quoted to justify oppressing everybody in Palestine. And that kind of creates a unique, like, interpretive challenge for uh, for Christians doing liberation theology there. Yeah, that's right. He has a, I mean, Naomi Teak has um, a considerable chapter in his book that is dealing with that problem. Um of you know the the tough parts of the bible that might be used to justify like colonialism that might be used to justify genocide that might be used to justify slavery and so on um i think that his way out of that is through a hermeneutic of christ and a hermeneutic of love and um you know you have to find strategies of reading the bible that is true um, the Bible is a big book. It's full of all kinds of different books. It's full of all kinds of complicated ideas and histories. And it's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of make sense of in a 100% consistent way or something. Uh, we've talked about that a lot in this podcast and we'll probably always have to talk about it because it's just kind of like central to the idea <laughs> of Christendom of Christianity. Um, and anyways, all that, all I'm trying to say is that like liberation theologians and I think Christians in general are always trying to come find ways to come to terms with some of these like tough parts. I don't know if I particularly like the way that, that Atik does it in this book. Um, I don't know if I really like the way that any Christian has ever done it really particularly. <laughs> uh, you know, he, he says that we have to read the Bible with these particular hermeneutics and that, you know, when, when it comes to these like um, sections of the Bible that affirm genocide or slavery or whatever, we should just like not read them publicly and we should just like, you know, <laughs> we should try to cast them out. And I understand that. Um, but also I think that's a uh, way too convenient of a solution speaking at, speaking as a Christian from the Imperial core, not as a Christian in Palestine. So maybe that, that is a difference that makes a difference. Um, all that to say, I feel like that lends itself to types of supersessionist reading that I don't think is like, because he's a Palestinian Christian, I think it's just cause he's a Christian in general that that is happening. Um, I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's a lot going on there, Dean, but maybe you want to say something else about it. 
<laughs> no, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Christianity in and of itself does have a lot of anti-Semitic uh, themes and threads sort of baked in that you have to be really careful to navigate. And I think that Atik is careful trying to do that, but um, it's just, you know, important to maybe be mindful of it, I guess, uh, especially when thinking about how to have a, a critical relationship to the Bible. I do think one thing that Atik has going for him is that when he suggests Jesus is the the hermeneutical lens he wants to privilege, um, it's something that would take into account uh, both the the so-called New and Old Testaments. It's a kind of, you know, it's like a hermeneutic for life, I guess. Uh, if you're a Christian, you're, you know, faithful to the kind of vision that Jesus offers. And Atik has some really interesting readings of different passages that I think open that up in some interesting ways. Um, and, you know, he's he's certainly entitled to his opinion as well. And like you said, Matt, like having a, uh, having like reading the lectionary, I guess, in Palestine and reading it in the global North or reading it from the position of being oppressed or being in the country that is the oppressor certainly would probably change your, uh, you know, your ability to like metabolize a certain passage or how you might hear it or what the audience might receive it as and so on. So I don't know. There's probably room for just making some important distinctions there. But uh, yeah, you know, Christianity has a, a history of supersessionism that I think is important to to think through in a careful way. Um, I do think also, though, it's important to point out that like Atik's sort of pitch here is one suggestion. There is, as I said, a, a pretty like rich diversity of voices within Palestinian liberation theology, which is something I have found really fascinating um, Christianity is an important, but also pretty small demographical community in Palestine. And so even though there are all these different denominations, they work together on all kinds of things, including theological reflection. Um, and I think that is really remarkable. So for example, in that same book I mentioned by Reheb, Decolonizing Palestine, he talks about uh, Naim Atik's strategy for kind of creating a, a hermeneutic to read the, the Bible through. He also profiles a couple of other theologians from different traditions, um, an Orthodox theologian and a Catholic um, bishop, I think, in the region. And then he offers sort of his own hermeneutic for reading it. So I think it's interesting to see this as maybe one one important ingredient in the big stew that is Palestinian liberation theology that Atik is contributing here. But, uh, you know, in that sense, too, it's also like not dissimilar from the kinds of hermeneutics you'll find in many other theologies outside of Palestine, that Christ is kind of the the hermeneutical key by which you filter out parts of the Bible. Totally, yeah. It, it is a Christian move, I think, um, not necessarily unique to him, um, <laughs> but not one without complication, but that's fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, in a, a further section of the book, um, about the about like more the specifics of Palestinian liberation theology, Atik writes: the seeds of Palestinian liberation theology can be traced back to a defining moment in Palestinian history, the Nakba, or in English, catastrophe. In 1948, approximately 750,000 Palestinians fled in fear or were driven out by force from their country because of the brutal onslaught of the Zionist militias. These militias were carrying out a premeditated plan to evacuate the country of its Palestinian inhabitants. Um, so the the Nakba, this is like the 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 the, the genesis of struggle, I, I guess, in in Palestine. Um, there are probably some different ways to talk about that. I mean, like you know, it, a lot of these ideas are kind of like latent uh, because 
they like Zionism did not just like suddenly emerge in 1948. I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's a it's a Mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. It's a pre World War II idea that had its its genesis elsewhere, but this is where the rubber the rubber meets the road in terms of Zionism in Palestine, um, and this is like the the beginning of like the military action and, and oppression of Palestinians. Um, and the Nakba is the word that you use to refer to that. Uh, but Atik he thinks through the Nakba in these like sort of like threefold ways these uh, these more like more layered and textured ideas that. Um, that this catastrophe sort of brings brings on to the Palestinian community. So he ha- has the human Nakba, the identity Nakba, and the faith Nakba. Uh, Dean, do you want to read the first one? Yeah, uh, and I think uh, it's helpful to, again, just hear Nakba both as a particular word and a word that just means catastrophe in English. Uh, sometimes, like, you'll hear Zionist rhetoric say that Nakba is, like, a form of hate speech or something like that, uh. and it super is not. <laughs> That's not true. Um, it is, uh, it's important to, I think, use that word and not just use catastrophe, but if it helps you to kind of hear the word catastrophe when you hear Nakba, um, to familiarize it, that I think is is maybe helpful. So uh, the human Nakba, so the human dimension of that catastrophe. Uh, Atik says, uh, the Nakba affected Palestinians ac- economically, ruptured Palestine's social fabric, and caused significant human trauma. The Nakba was the direct cause of poverty because it resulted in the loss of Palestinian homes, lands, and possessions. And the vignette that Matt read at the beginning, uh, which is in the beginning of the book, is Atik's own experience of of that, right? Being sort of uh, dumped in Nazareth uh, after living a pretty normal, um, even, you know, his dad having a, a pretty successful business and so on and so forth, um, living in, in comfort in the land and so on, and then sort of being stripped of all of that. There's a kind of human cost to that, which is probably the... I think the part when people talk about the Nakba is maybe the easiest part to <laughs> to like metabolize or grapple with or understand that there's a, a human cost to pushing a ton of people off of their land and making them refugees for literally no reason except, you know, the, the Zionist appetite of the state. Um, but that's the, the first dimension. Maybe I'll just read the other two and yeah. then we can talk them through. Not a good idea. Uh, the next dimension is the identity Nakba. He says, overnight, Palestinians in Israel went from living in their own homes and lands to being strangers in their own country. For many Palestinians, this physical uprooting resulted in a crisis of identity. Palestinian Christians and Muslims had to renegotiate what it meant to be Christian or Muslim, Palestinian, and Arab in the new Israeli state that did not want them. And Atik notes that Israel undermined Palestinian identity in lots of different ways, um, they had control over different education systems and all kinds of other stuff, uh, laws around language and symbolism. The Palestinian flag was deemed a, a terror symbol, all these kind of things. But one thing that really stuck out to me is that it was actually forbidden to speak about Palestine or Palestinians until the Oslo Accords in 1993. Um, that's between uh, the, the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization at the time, and the state of Israel. And he says, on ID cards, Palestinians were referred to as Arabs, and the Palestinians who remained inside the Israeli state were known as Israeli Arabs, not as Palestinians. So when he talks about the identity Nakba, he's talking about, you know, the total catastrophe of what it means to be a Palestinian to the point that you literally can't use that term to describe yourself legally in Israel. And then lastly is what he calls the faith Nakba. He says that the heart of the faith Nakba was the harsh juxtaposition between the church and the day-to-day life of Palestinians. 
For the first 18 years following the Nakba, Palestinians were placed under very strict military rule that controlled every aspect of their lives, yet within the church, nothing seems to have changed. Um, this is, you know, the a pretty simple critique, I guess, that the church is, like, alienated from the experience of the people, um, but it's a, a catastrophe, right? It's a, a kind of, um, I don't know, like, accepting of defeat, or maybe even not that, maybe just a total removal from the the lived experience of oppression uh, among faith communities. Uh, but here, at least, uh, Atik has some more to say about some of the developments. He says, some Palestinian Christians held on to their faith. For others, the Nakba caused the collapse of their belief system. They were unable to go back to their former theological and spiritual way of thinking while groping to find a meaningful way forward. Whether it was the theology of Christian fundamentalism and Zionism or the ideology of Jewish Zionism, the Bible was used to grant approval to the tragic fate of the Palestinian people. Religious beliefs seemed to clash with the reality of everyday life. In general, the first responses of Christians and churches to the Nakba were humanitarian. They provided food and shelter to the refugees and to the vulnerable members of the Palestinian community. However, these acts of charity were not accompanied by political action. There were many reasons for this. Most of the church hierarchy at the time was foreign and consequently not as invested in the political situation as the Palestinians themselves. Most Palestinians were in shock. They could not believe what was happening to them and to their country. Their first concern was to care for the immediate needs of their families and to the great influx of refugees. So uh, just to sum up here, there's kind of three dimensions here, right? There's the human Nakba, the, uh, the sort of just basic human cost of moving a bunch of people off their land, forcing them off their land. There's the identity Nakba, the loss of that Palestinian identity, and the faith Nakba, this sort of loss of faith and a, a disconnect from uh, from your faith life and, and what you're actually experiencing. Uh, and I think, you know, for me at least, the way Atik parses it all out is super helpful and kind of hearing it from somebody who has lived through that experience is really, uh, really useful as well. So those are the, the kind of dimensions he pulls out. He goes into greater detail too on each of those pieces. Um, but it's important to talk about the Nakba because Israel obviously suppresses that story in every way that it can, um, including making talking about the Nakba uh, politically risky and, and illegal and so on. Um, so it's important for people outside of uh, Israel to be able to especially kind of remember that and learn about it. And um, yeah, I'm finding it very helpful at least to hear Atik uh, parse it out this way. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a it's an important part of the story. And I don't know. I mean, Israel suppresses the story, but in the United States, you're not going to hear it either, right? And I mean, probably the same in the UK, unless you mm -hmm. are going out of your way to find people who will tell you that story. It's just one that you're not gonna you're not gonna get um, because of uh, I don't know the way that the rules based international order functions <laughs> or <laughs> or doesn't function, depending on your perspective, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's an important example and like explanation of exactly what that oppression looks like and like the the rootless character that it might give to people, um, you know, physically being moved around and stuff. Um, you know, something that does stick out to me about Palestinian liberation theology is the sort of locus of struggle and the particular like uh, mechanism that dispossesses people is actually quite different than um, Latin American liberation theology. And that is maybe an, an interesting difference to pull out, I think. You know, like when you read people like Gutierrez or Lena Raboff or whatever, um, they are not always only talking about 
economics or i mean even some like hink lamart who we talked about not very recently right that he's like a really explicitly economic kind of liberation theologian um and uh that's where a lot of ideas about dependency theory come into play and so on but in palestinian liberation theology you get a different type of struggle a different type of oppression that is not disconnected from the economic because i think that there's a lot of that going on there but it is like uh, by necessity a lot more focused on like apartheid and race um, than it is like economics. And I think that's just an interesting difference. That is, uh, I mean, it's not it's not like in any way contradicting other types of liberation theology. I don't think, um, but it is like uh, it's an important it's an important difference that it brings to the table, and one that I think I I think I actually kind of welcome because it demonstrates the way that liberation theology has. A capacity to speak to struggle in a lot of different contexts, and I think that's kind of helpful to to see it in uh, in action. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, there's a lot of interesting relationships here among liberation theologians. So I think it's really fascinating that Atik is seeing himself as kind of adding something to that conversation. Yeah. Like he's not, um, I don't know, he's not like criticizing the Latin Americans for not having that in their analysis. Um, but he's instead kind of encouraging a more plural understanding of liberation theology. Hence, he also, you know, talks about uh, uh, black theology in South Africa, which was also done under a different kind of apartheid. Um, I think there's also more situational attendance to uh, to the theological violence that's at the heart of the Palestinian oppression. Um, you know, you do see that in Latin American theology, but I think it comes a little bit later and, it, you know, it's tied to uh, like colonization in a, a different moment. Like it's often kind of dealing with the consequences of, you know, the kind of like the 1500s and those waves of colonization onward. And it will recognize that colonization is still ongoing, but you kind of have like a stronger identification with the church in Latin America. Uh Liberation theology is basically the reason that people kept being Christians. You know, it's um, it's maybe like the the kind of dimensions you get with the faith Nakba that uh, that Atik points out here just aren't as present in in a context like you know Brazil yeah. or something like that. So uh, I think that is really unique to the way that Palestinian theology is kind of maybe able to uniquely call out not only Zionism but certainly Zionism, but just the kind of the ways that theology can be and is mobilized for violence, I think is a, a pretty instructive lesson um, for all Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, Atik even goes out of the way a little bit later on in the book to talk about the ways that like early Zionism had, I think more of like a political flavor to it. And cause it's like, you know, about the establishment of a state uh, of a state. Whereas, um, mm -hmm. whereas like later expressions of Zionism had a an extremely religious aspect to them, like a hyper-religious aspect. And not just like, I mean, you know, within within Judaism, yes, but also within Christianity, too. So um, in, in both fronts, mm -hmm. uh, you see that. So uh, important context to add to the big pile of things that is liberation theology. <laughs> yeah. Um, one other piece before we move on past the Nakba material here. Um, I think it's really important to keep learning more about the Nakba, um, not just because it's like a historical reality that should be dismissed, or that is being dismissed, sorry. <laughs> but uh, but also because, like, Netanyahu right now, I just saw, is uh, talking about how this is the, the second war for Israel's independence. And that's, like, a 
you know, pretty direct reference to the uh-huh. the early uh, means by which Israel secured its independence first through um, evicting and displacing all these Palestinians and then through, you know, war with uh, other Arab states nearby. And I think it's important to recognize that, like, even while Israel goes out of its way to, on the one hand, suppress talking about the Nakba, it also, like, has perversely, like, important uses for everybody understanding that it was an incredibly brutal and violent moment of displacement. Mm -hmm. Like it's a a means of licensing the current violence because everybody knows that that's the, the violence on which the state is built. And I think that's, you know, in the same way that like in, uh, in Canada, you know, we're kind of still going through this reckoning on residential schools and other processes of colonization across this country. You know, it's important to recognize that like, that violence is a, an integral part of Canadian state building and sovereignty and legit legitimacy making. And when you start kind of questioning that violence, it does call into question the existence of the state and the settler colonial identity and so on. So all that to say, like learning about the Nakba is not only important because you want to like, I don't know, remember something that people don't want you to remember, but also because it's like still factoring into the kind of psychology of the Israeli state as it's currently, you know, doing the same thing uh, with more advanced weapons in the 21st century. It is such an interesting distinction that, um, well, like, you know, places like Canada or the United States are, um, you know, when it comes to their own dispossession and colonization and sort of like settler mindset, it's always kind of like um, (laughs) through a lens of embarrassment or attrition or sadness that we're remembering this happening. Right. It's always like, it's always very sad. It's like, you know, we are, we're owning up to it. It was bad. At least in, at least in like liberal circles, that's how you'll hear people talk about it. Right. Like uh, Mm -hmm, it's, mm -hmm. it's not good that this is the way that our found, this is not, it's not good that this is the foundation of our society, but like, you know, we're sorry about that, but we still exist anyways. But I guess the difference is that, like, in the context of Israel, it's like <laughs> this this happened and it's good and we're going to still do it. And it's just like a, a lot, a lot different mm-hmm. sort of brazen. It, they're Like, they're both settler colonial mindsets, but I guess like one is just a little more in your face. And that's <laughs> bad. <laughs> bad. They're both bad, but this one's yeah, yeah. especially bad. <laughs> Well, it's instructive, too, because, you know, you see so much of the West just lining up to give Israel a blank check to do as much violence as it could possibly do in Palestine as long as it wants. And it's kind of like the these states, these countries, you know, people like Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden, like they will whatever publicly be sad, as you're saying about colonization and so on. But at the end of the day, like. When push comes to shove, like it is right now in in Palestine, the settler regimes come together, you know, like they support one another in that very project, because at the end of the day, like that is not a lesson that has been learned by settler colonial states elsewhere either. Like, Mm. you know, Trudeau and Biden and whomever else can say all they want that, you know, settler colonialism is like a dark spot on the history of these countries or whatever. But at the end of the day, like. You know, they're perfectly happy to basically like promote and even celebrate the success of that project uh, in a country like Israel. So it just goes to show that, you know, settler colonialism is like an active ideology. It's it's not a, a past thing. And, and that's the feature of its success, that it, it continues to kind of inhabit people's brains in all these really awful ways, uh, even when you're not like actively shelling the people that you're trying to replace. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's an important thing to say, I think. 
something interesting, I, I'm just going to say this because I'm in a particularly interesting geographic position of being a person who was, you know, lived most of their life in the United States, but now I'm living in Scotland, which is a different context in a lot of different ways. I mean, the UK is a part of that settler colonialism. I mean, as much as anybody is, <laughs> you know, not that they've colonized England, mm-hmm. but they've colonized every single other place in, in the whole entire world. Um, and Scotland, too, I mean, <laughs> has a colonial history. I was walking through Glasgow today and, you know, um, there are parts of the city that's called like Merchant City. <laughs> and it's like, uh, what were they selling there? And it's people, you know, <laughs> it's bad. Um, yeah. But uh, I guess. It's interesting, though, because the current Scotland, uh, as it exists, is um, uh, okay. So a quick, I guess, a quick lesson in (laughs) global politics in case you want it. So the United Kingdom, it's made up of a a few different countries, right? England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland. Um, And uh, there are certain levels of like governmental autonomy that each of these countries have. Uh, Scotland has a particular amount um, that is interesting uh, but Scotland has its own parliament that's like separate from the larger UK parliament. And the leader of that parliament is a guy named Hamza Yusuf. And uh, like parents and family currently live in Palestine and like he can't talk to them. <laughs> and uh, I'm laughing because it's an awful thing to think about. He has been like the leading voice in the UK to call for a ceasefire and to call for humanitarian aid and to try to like move other politicians within the UK to like take some <laughs> to take some initiative and in, like having a backbone about this whole thing. And anyways, it's all it's really interesting to see that like the tensions in those conversations happen within a place like the UK because of that, you know, that particular background of settler colonialism and like in, in the ways that it can actually be challenged, though, um, especially when you have people who are, you know, um, I don't want to say outsiders, that's the wrong word, but who have different life experiences than I think like um, other people in the UK. Uh, it's it's a powerful thing to see, though. It's it's good. It's not like it's impossible to deal with. And I guess that's the that's the thing that I sort of feel hopeful about is that uh, it's possible for uh, people to overcome those particular things, especially if you are um, committed to recognizing the the dignity and self determination of people who have um, previously been colonized or are currently colonized, uh, it's it's possible to like, I guess, overcome that way of thinking. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And it's important to say that too, because uh, I don't know, like the poll after poll shows that in the US, the UK, uh, you know, in Canada, like the people of these countries generally don't think that destroying Palestine is a good thing. Um, but the leaders and their rhetoric in general would not give you that impression, right? It's like they've all kind of closed ranks for the most part, um, including punitively in a place like Canada, (laughs) sort of punishing politicians for speaking out in favor of Palestinian uh, justice and ceasefire and so on. And I think it's important to kind of resist the the closed nature of that that policy decision, Mm -hmm. you know, and to kind of keep looking for those exceptions. Um, There was a pretty interesting interview in The Drift with um, Rashid Khalidi, who's a a Palestinian and professor and, yeah, interesting um, scholar of uh, Middle Eastern history. And uh, it's a great interview. I think um, there's lots to say about it. But one thing that I thought was really fascinating, um, it just occurred to me as you were talking, was uh, he kind of has this interesting reflection on student activists outside of Palestine. And uh, he says this, I'll just read it. Um, He says, 
If you believe that this is a settler colonial project, then you are in the metropole of that colony here in the United States or in Western Europe, and national liberation movements have won not only, sometimes not primarily, by winning on the battlefield in the colony. The Vietnamese were at a stalemate with the Americans, the Algerians were actually losing on the battlefield, the IRA was almost at the end of its tether militarily in 1921. They won in part because they won over the metropole. The English finally said, we just don't want to fight this war, we can't fight this war. Same thing happened with the French in Algeria. It wasn't only the fighters up in the mountains who won the war. Uh, he says, I'm not saying that wasn't a crucial element in the liberation of Algeria, etc. Uh, but if the French had continued to want to kill Algerians, the war could have gone on forever. French people didn't want it to continue because they didn't want to take more losses. He says some more there. Uh, but finally, he says, if you believe this theoretical construct, the colony and the metropole, then what activists do here in the metropole counts. You have to win people over. Uh, I think that is really important. Um, he also has like some good words for like why that means you maybe shouldn't try to be like the most radical person in the room at every second of your life, which mm. I think is uh, <laughs> important <laughs> advice. But uh, that idea that, you know, you can kind of puncture the, the ideological clouds, I guess, um, in the centers of global power. And that is actually really essential to do um, if you want liberation in the peripheries. I think it's like easy if you live in the core to be like, there's basically nothing I can do but watch people suffer. Um, that's how it can feel like scrolling Twitter or Facebook or whatever. But there is something instructive about that, that, you know, if you can kind of apply the pressure in the core, especially when there's popular support for that um, alternative uh, opinion, um, that makes a world of difference. You know, you have to imagine, like, if the president of the United States wasn't basically telling Netanyahu, like, do whatever you want and kind of supplying them with aid and uh, military aid, that is. Like, it probably, you know, it's not that Netanyahu wouldn't want to brutalize Palestinians, but, like, he would have less support and money and permission to do so. You know, these are kind of differences that, that do make a difference in the end, and uh, it, it matters to kind of find those counterexamples and, and boost those uh, in our own context. And I guess all that to say, like, that's why it's important to be reading people like Nematik, right? To, like, show that there is some other kind of story about Palestine that's not being told, you know, Nematik is not like the first person in that you're going to read in seminary, if at all, maybe ever, you know, and uh, also not the first person you're going to see on news media or whatever, talking about the effects of the bombing in, in Palestine and, and so on. So uh, it's essential, I think, for Christians who want to be in solidarity with the poor to kind of take that advice seriously to say it matters that if you're in the global north, you're kind of learning about those struggles such that you can, you know, contribute to that ideological shift that's not a, a meaningless effort yeah um man a good word a great point about the importance of solidarity and like that it does maybe actually have a difference um that is great uh at the rally today i kept hearing the phrase over and over again that like 75 percent of people in the uk don't don't want this to happen they don't they they don't they don't want the <laughs> they don't want a war um for sure but also they want a ceasefire so it's like, you know, a, it's a popular idea in that, like, uh, you know, uh, masses of the population support it. So I don't know. But it is the uh, the fringe politicians who who have uh, a lot of power still uh, pushing it, like you've mentioned. Um, well, the the book ends Palestinian theology of liberation ends with some um, a, a few a few ideas around guidance. What should Christians do? Um, there's a section towards the end, uh, in the last few pages called we are servants of God's kingdom. 
Um, and Atik writes that in order to be servants of God's kingdom in the 21st century, we need to keep in mind the following. And he has seven bullet points. A great a great number of bullet points. Not ten, but seven. <laughs> a holy number. A holy number is right. That's exactly it. Uh, so he says the following. Remember to stay connected with the source of your faith. Remember to practice your faith through the love of God and the love of your neighbor. Remember to work for the liberation of all oppressed people, including the Palestinians. Remember to commit yourself to the use of nonviolence. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., means and ends must go here because the end is preexistent and the means and ultimately destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. This means we must be as pure as the ends we seek. Um, number five is remember to imitate Christ in your life. Uh, six is remember to pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as as it is in heaven and then the last is to remember that the kingdom of god is justice and peace in terms of like political efficacy or like uh strategic direction or something not not a helpful list of things but in terms of um staying sort of like faithfully oriented and grounded in a particularly good comportment um, or using like Christianity probably in the best way that you can. Pretty good list. I think it's nice. <laughs> I think so too. Uh, I think that's a, a good note to end the the episode on. I guess uh, I'll, I'll add the book has a ton more stuff that we didn't get to talk about. Um, one thing that's really valuable about it is that it provides some pretty brief accessible history of things like Sabil. Um, it gives you a nice snapshot of the the global network that Sabil has all over the world. There is some interesting kind of historical information about the development of Palestinian liberation theology with some other actors and lots of context about what is Palestine and who lives there and what's kind of the longer history that we don't often hear. So all that to say, there's a ton of other details in there. We're picking out things that stick out to us, but uh I don't know. We have our own weird her hermeneutic that maybe leads us to <laughs> <laughs> look at some things and other others. So uh, it's a. Uh, I think it's an important book to read front to back, uh, along with lots of other voices right now. And um, it's also uh, a good proof that Orbis Books is still out there publishing all the good stuff. Orbis so books you rules. should get it from them. Never um, read a bad book from them. Orbis is the best. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, so get it. They didn't even give us to this book for free. We're just saying that because it's uh, it's an important word, I think, to be reading right now. Um, and they've published some other great stuff on Palestine through Orbis as well. Um, maybe that's uh, actually one piece we didn't mention. There's So there's Palestinian, Palestinian liberation theology. There's also a wider conversation in liberation theology that connects to Palestine. For example, uh, Rosemary Radford Ruther, she's a pretty famous feminist Catholic theologian in the U.S. who died recently. Um, she was super invested in Palestinian theology and Latin American theology, so interesting point of connection there. Um, I know that uh, Mark Ellis, who's a really important and very unique Jewish theologian, has done a ton of work with uh, Sabil and many other Christians in Palestine and um, along with Christians in Latin America and has written a, a Jewish theology of liberation that kind of pulls all that together. So all that to say, like, once you start pulling the threads, there's actually a pretty huge archive of information and books and everything else published. But uh, this is a good place to start, maybe, if you're just looking for one way in. There you go. Go buy a book. <laughs> go buy a book. Go to the, the Solidarity Rally in your city. Tell your friends. 
there you go. <laughs> That's what you should do. <laughs> there you go. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Maybe also look up the Sabeel Solidarity chapter in your region. There's one for North America. There's one in the UK. There are several all throughout Europe and many other places too. And see what they're saying, what they're publishing, and see how you can support those efforts as well. Um, Let's see. Our intro music is by Amaria Armstrong. Our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. And we'll see you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up. Keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have